0: That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the Nuclear Hot Seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. This week, we're going to talk with Zach Nokamiko Reuter. He's a Canadian anti-nuclear activist and was involved in the recent protest against G.E. Hitachi in Toronto. This was a joint protest with Idle No More, the Native rights movement, and they were protesting the inside-the-city facility that produces uranium pellets for nuclear reactors – Truly a David and Goliath story, and listen in as David wins. That story will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 12, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. The big story in the last week here in the States has been the letter sent by Senator Barbara Boxer and Representative Ed Markey to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission demanding release of a suppressed report that shows that Edison had prior knowledge of potential design flaws in replacement steam generators that failed after less than two years of service. Last week, Senator Boxer from California and Representative Markey from Massachusetts sent a letter to the NRC about a leaked report Indicating that Edison and Mitsubishi, quote, were aware of serious problems with the design of San Onofre nuclear power plants replacement steam generators before they were installed, and that they, quote, rejected enhanced safety modifications and avoided triggering a more rigorous license amendment and safety review process. Senator Boxer is chairwoman of the Committee on Environment and Public Works, and as such has tremendous power in this situation. Modifications to correct the design flaws were not adopted, as Edison wanted to avoid triggering an NRC license amendment process, which would have required a more thorough and a public review of the replacement program. Many grassroots organizations, city councils, San Diego School Board, Congressman Juan Vargas of California, and San Diego Mayor Bob Filner have demanded a full transparent adjudicatory hearing and license amendment process, including experts independent of the NRC, Edison, and the nuclear power industry to review the failure of the steam generators and any proposal for restarting the plant. Friends of the Earth filed a petition with the NRC, claiming that the confirmatory action letter from the NRC is serving as a de facto license amendment, but without review by the public, other outside organizations, or any hearings. They also claim that the original approval of the replacement steam generator project would have triggered the license amendment process. This case is still in process. The California Public Utilities Commission, which approves all financial aspects of the plant, started an investigation into the ongoing outage of San Onofre as regards cost and reliability of services. Many have demanded that the NRC wait to approve any operation until the CPUC has completed their investigation. For all other types of utilities in California, the CPUC handles both the financial and safety aspects of public utility operation. A study of NRC data conducted by nuclear industry expert Dan Hirsch of the Committee to Bridge the Gap and an instructor at the University of California at Santa Cruz clearly shows that all four steam generators at San Onofre have experienced similar devastating wear during their first few months of operation. Most new steam generators have zero tubes damaged after the first refueling cycle, while San Onofre had 1,600 and 1,800 tubes damaged in Unit 2 and Unit 3 reactors, respectively. According to Hirsch, the steam generators in the two reactors exhibit almost identical severe wear patterns there is no basis to assume that the Unit 2 steam generators are safe to operate at any power level. The NRC recently asked Southern California Edison to explain how the Unit 2 reactor could be run at 70% power, which is what they are asking, when the license states that it must be capable of 100% power, given that the steam generators are necessary for the removal of heat from the reactor core in many accident scenarios. Since SCE has already admitted that the steam generators would exhibit excessive wear when run at 100%, it seems they are boxed into a corner with no way out. The underlying agenda of SCE, the plant operator, was to supercharge the steam generators, essentially uprating the plant to produce more power without NRC or public approval. Well, it's all going to hit the fan today, February 12, because there is going to be a meeting this evening at 6 p.m. between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the public at the Capo Beach Church in Capistrano Beach, California. Nuclear hot seat will be there, along with a wide array of activists and other concerned individuals who are outraged at the thought of SCE restarting a damaged, compromised nuclear reactor in an area where, within 50 miles, there are over 8.5 million people. We will bring your reports direct from the scene, on next week's nuclear hot seat. We have more specifics on the 70,000 U.S. service personnel who have been exposed to radiation because of Operation Tomodachi, which happened in the wake of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster and was meant to be humanitarian in nature. This is also a follow-up to the recent lawsuit filed by U.S. naval personnel from the USS Ronald Reagan, which was directly involved in Operation Tomodachi. According to attorney Paul C. Gardner, who is representing U.S. service members who were in Japan after 3:11, he said they've got leukemia, they have growths, they're undergoing surgery to remove lesions in their brains. A couple of them have had them, meaning the brain lesions, and have lost the sight in their eye. One guy has testicular cancer. He was aboard the Reagan. He's 21. He had one of his testicles removed already. One woman who is over there has already had a bone marrow transplant at the National Institute of Health in Maryland. You know what their talking points are, the TEPCO people and those in power? It's all low-level radiation, nothing to worry about. It's too little to worry about. Well, some people are worried, and it is justifiable. Another concern about this story, however, is that the United States government has dropped any follow-up on its database about those 70,000 U.S. service personnel who were exposed to radiation. In other words, they have a baseline, but there will be no follow-ups to chart what the health impact was of being that close to the worst of the Fukushima Daiichi disaster. More lawsuits... People whose homes or farms were hit by radiation from the stricken Fukushima nuclear plant will file class action lawsuits next month to seek damages from the Japanese government. This according to lawyers last Friday. At least 350 residents are to file a case with Fukushima District Court on March 11, the second anniversary of the disaster. This is the largest class action suit on the issue to date that has been filed against Japan. The plaintiffs, who are also scheduled to sue plant operator Tokyo Electric Power, plan to seek 50,000 yen, the equivalent of $535, in compensation for every month they have been displaced by the disaster. They also intend to ask the court to issue an order forcing both the government and TEPCO to reduce radiation levels in the area to those before the accident. Yeah, good luck with that. According to lawyer Izutaru Managi, the government promoted nuclear power as a national policy and has been closely involved with it. Being fully aware of the danger of losing power due to a tsunami, the government neglected its duty of preventing such an event. This is a suit to recover a Fukushima with neither radiation nor nuclear power. Several other similar class action suits will also be filed separately on March 11 with the Tokyo District Court against both the government and TEPCO. More on health in Japan. There is a sharp increase in Fukushima doctors who don't feel well physically since 3-11 of 2011. More than three times as many now say their health condition is not good. This from the Fukushima Radioactive Contamination Symptoms Research Newsletter. It states that 19.4% of Fukushima physicians answered their physical state isn't well question, 14.1% of Miyagi physicians, and 12.8% of Iwate physicians answered similarly. The percentage of Fukushima physicians, 19.4%, is 3.5 times more than the number of physicians who answered positively to that question before March 11 of 2011. The Japanese Medical Association Research Institute, which conducted the survey, suggests that these physicians from three Tohoku prefectures have been working hard and long hours due to lack of physicians. In Fukushima, they might be affected by stress caused by Tokyo Electric Company's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident. Y'all think? To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, What about the radiation, guys? You think that might be part of them not feeling well? It is part of a Fukushima child not feeling well. According to a citizen's organization for Fukushima, a child living in Date City since March 11 of 2011 has had 6,000 becquerels per kilogram of cesium measured in his body. The Date City government conducted whole body counter tests for children. According to Professor Yuri Bondazhevsky, former director of the Medical Institute in Gomel in the Soviet Union, anything over 50 becquerels per kilogram of body weight leads to irreversible lesions in vital organs. If this child in question weighs, say, 100 pounds, that means that anything over 5,000 becquerels per kilogram could lead to irreversible lesions in his vital organs. And remember, he had 6,000 kilograms. Now to a new feature of Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly NRC report. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission says that the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant in Plymouth experienced an automatic shutdown during the massive snowstorm that took place last week. On February 8th, the plant shut down after losing off-site power. The plant declared an unusual event, a usual event for the NRC, and the fourth from highest level of alert of danger at a nuclear power plant. The shutdown came as blizzard cane Nemo began clobbering the New York to Boston corridor. Local groups had previously asked the U.S. NRC to order Energy Corporation, Pilgrim's operator, to take the reactor offline during the storm to prevent an unacceptable risk to the public and the environment. The NRC, of course, always dedicated to, quote, protecting people and the environment, end quote, turned a deaf ear to this request, and the reactor lost power. It lost it a second time two days later on February 10, after having power restored for several hours following the off-site outage on Friday night. Three emergency diesel generators are now providing backup power to the facility's safety system, according to Carol Whiteman, a spokeswoman for Energy Corporation. Other pieces of the week's NRC report? At Clinton Nuclear Power Plant in Illinois, on February 11, a supervisory employee had a confirmed positive for alcohol during a random fitness-for-duty test. What about the days when this guy wasn't tested? In Louisville, Kentucky... It was discovered that switches meant to be used in nuclear reactors were built and shipped using an adhesive that was beyond its manufacturer's recommended expiration date. Mm -mm -mm. Quoting from the report, Adhesion properties of the expired adhesive cannot be guaranteed against the deleterious effects of seismic events, thermal aging, and high-dose radiation. Gee, I wonder when and where any of that could happen. And finally, Turkey Point in Florida, yet another turkey of a nuclear power plant, had an automatic reactor trip due to turbine trip on loss of condenser vacuum. I don't know what that means, but it sure doesn't sound good. So at nuclear reactors around the country, it's unusual business as usual, to which Nuclear Hot Seat adds that our usual recommendation is... Now for this week's interview. Zach Nokamiko Router is a Canadian anti-nuclear activist working on a variety of issues aimed at creating a global nuclear shutdown. He's a believer in direct action and was most recently seen as part of an amazing demonstration in Toronto against GE Hitachi's Mid-Toronto facility that manufactures uranium pellets for use in reactor fuel rods. Interesting that no one in Toronto seemed to know that this plant even existed, or if it did, what it was up to. In conjunction with the Idle No More movement, and led by indigenous people, Zach tells the story of how this small group of activists faced down a train and became heroes to a local community.
1: Zach, known on Facebook as No Chemico Ruder, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Thank you, anti nuclearia. We also say renewableia for renewables and earthia.
1: So, Zach, how did you first become involved in the anti nuclear movement?
2: I was living in Peterborough, Ontario, which is about an hour and a half away from Toronto, and I was living a block away from General Electric. And um, it was only because of searching some websites late one night with a friend that we actually noticed that. The GE plant that was a block away from me had secretly or had quietly gotten permission to do low enriched uranium or LEU a block away from where I was was living, but right across the street from the uh, elementary school. They got their amendment to do low enriched uranium in 2009, but when their license review came up in 2010, maybe nine days before the hearing, we found out and we alerted the community And there was a huge uproar because General Electric had purposely kept people in the dark. But at that hearing, where we did successfully get the LEUs revoked, we found out that they also had a Toronto facility that no one knew about. So fast forward two years.
1: This is the one that's just been in the news recently.
2: Yeah, the Toronto facility that's just been in the news. The news didn't know what to make of it because it's been there for 50 years, but the story was that no one knew that it was there, right in their neighborhood. And it... This uh, GE Itachi uranium processing facility processes 53% of the uranium yellow cake dioxide powder that becomes 53% of the pellets that go into Canadian reactors. that will become 53% of the nuclear waste that we have to deal with produced each year. So we're actually really grand central radiation station on the Canadian nuclear fuel chain, and no one knew it.
1: And not only was it being manufactured there, but also you have the transport coming in and out and whatever the communities were that the uranium was going through.
2: Well, we still don't know. They won't, for security reasons, they won't tell us how they're transporting it or, you know, what their schedule is or what their route is.
1: Unless they've got teleportation, it's got to be happening overland in some form, which, of course, just spreads the potential for contamination.
2: Well, we have another thing that we've just seen in the news, that Chalk River, which was the uh, reactor first set up to do plutonium production for the Manhattan Project that's outside of our capital in Ottawa, it has just announced plans to be shipping by truck highly enriched liquid uranium down to, I believe, North Carolina. What could go wrong with shipping high-level liquid uranium? It, It boggles the mind. What's interesting though is uh, like we need to be aware of the techniques that the authorities use to marginalize opposition and develop our own techniques to defeat them.
1: Give it's the listeners some examples as to what you mean.
2: Public consultation. Even though they have to do public consultation, it's it's a method deployed by the industry and the pro-nuclear relations to say we listen to you and therefore since we listen to you and we had to choose another decision it's valid because we listen to you. So public consultation, I find, is designed to simultaneously incorporate yet disenfranchise dissident voice.
1: That's but the same thing that's happening down here with San Onofre, that the, the NRC and SCE are having all these quote-unquote public meetings, but it's basically to let our side let off steam as opposed to having any substantive impact on the process. Let's get to the recent demonstrations that were taking place. So it seems like there's been an alliance made between the anti nuclear forces and Idle No More, which is a major movement in Canada now.
2: Yes, it is. It started with four women in Saskatchewan, three native, one non native, to really address the coming omnibus bill by the conservative government. For example, one of the things in their budget bill they sneak in is that. The amount of protected navigable waterways, so protected rivers, is going to go from something like 85,000 down to 35, because what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to uh, allow for oil tankers taking tar sands crude through really delicate ecosystems. This government is basically playing all out for resource wars and dominance at any cost. So we have the tar sands in Alberta, and then right next door. We have the Athabasca Basin where almost 40% of the world's annual uranium exports are mined and exported, and there's no way of guaranteeing if they go into uh, military hands or not. And there's also a really wonderful plan to um, fuel tar sands extraction with mini-breeder reactors. So the idea behind that would be to greenwash the tar sands by saying that we're no longer emitting fossil fuels in extraction because... We're using nuclear reactors to power that extraction.
1: And what could go wrong there? The conjoining of two of the most dangerous technologies on the planet at the same time.
2: But, I mean, we're, we're getting to that point where things are going to be a bit more serious in terms of the resistance. I know that we were inspired by maybe seeing some pictures in Germany of some rail blockades, but when we had our rail blockade, we realized that we do have common interests with the Native people and the Anishinaabe people, the Haudenosaunee people. And this blockade was led by them. I think we may have been arrested if it wasn't with the people from Idle No More. But it was, uh, you know, like a rail blockade is a nonviolent action. It was peaceful. It was safe. and No one was arrested in the end. We were led by a, a circle of women Native drummers. And the women who held that circle with the drumming were making the decisions, but they were also keeping us safe with their prayers, because every beat of their drum is another prayer.
1: Talk us through how that demonstration took place, because there are some startling and wonderful pictures and also a video online, which we will link to at nuclearhotseat.com, that shows these women standing and drumming in the face of the train, and it is stopped. They're standing in the middle of the tracks. So how did this remarkable situation come about, and how were you involved in it?
2: We started off at the local Coffee Time donut shop, which is in the bottom of like a low-income housing tower complex that is actually right next door to the uranium plant. So when the uranium puts its, its uranium up into the air, those buildings through their windows are breathing in and out that air, and the people inside it are breathing in and out that uranium contaminated air.
1: Has there ever been an epidemiological study of those people?
2: Of course not. Of course not. And, you know, because you wouldn't want to know the results. Also, you know, the, it's a very transient area, and that's why one of the reasons why GE can get away with this, because you know, no cancer ever really reveals its origin, you know, in a little note to you. Back to the rally, we we had an opening ceremony by an elder from the Mohawk Turtle Clan, and then we had round dances in some major intersections through the neighborhood. Now, the police must have been tipped off that we wanted to take the rail, so they, since the night before, were working through all hours to barricade all the places where the community accesses the rail paths because, you know, they walk their dogs along the side of the rail and they cross it where it's inconvenient to sort of go around. So we were blocked off there, but we did round dances, which is a traditional native round dance, in all the sort of major intersections as we went south and then curved up in a U-shape. And then just as it looked like we were about to disperse or disband, We deeped out the cops and headed for a level railway crossing, and the look on the cops' faces were just bewildered. They couldn't believe that we actually got the rail, and uh, uh, Devine, who's one of our warriors, uh, native warriors, announced that the police are going to be working for us now.
1: How many people were there taking part in the demonstration? We had about
2: a hundred or maybe hundred and twenty to start with, but then by the time that we took the tracks, it was more you know, it was more word of mouth on the organizers and we had maybe about thirty people who took the tracks, but once we took the tracks, we had people from the neighborhood coming out saying this is one of the greatest things they've ever seen in their life. <laughs> and and what's really interesting is that when you're when you say the blockade in, in the environmental community you know, a lot of people will instantly, like, use that as a reason to not even talk to you anymore, but really...
1: Why Hanson would they have that running, response?
2: Because they're afraid. They're afraid. Of who or what? Someone's supposed to speak at the climate rally on the 17th named Hansen, who's a pro-nuclear Sierra Club member.
1: Right, we've been covering that story.
2: And we've been having debates within the Sierra Club anti-nukes uh, caucus listserv on... What's the best way to deal with it? And some people were saying, well, he's an environmentalist, don't burn bridges, don't soil your allies. But for me, that's like silence and disengagement, and that's really complicit. And I said, you know, why don't you just hold up a sign saying this is nuke washing the climate. I came up with a slogan that nuclear winter is no solution for global warming. You know, really pushing it, really exposing these contradictions. But other people were quoting Gandhi to me to say that if you challenge someone within your own movement with a different tactic or a criticism, then you're unnecessarily being divisive. And, you know, what we're dealing with here is a culture of professional environmentalism that's done it in a certain way and that gets paid to control it in a certain way. So the people who are blockading we're the most grassroots people, and I think that's a real test is to whether to see what your action will accomplish and to really ask ourselves in the movement what has been successful and what hasn't been successful. Even through no fault of our own, what has not worked, wink, wink, hint, hint, appearing in front of the rubber stamping commissions or this Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission, the NRC, and the you know, nuclear priesthood and clergy. I mean, that's not going to work. It's the definition of stupid to try something again and again and think that you're going to get a different result. So we really need to up the ante as the anti-nuclear movement and really not stand in the way of the people who are willing to up the ante.
1: Everything you're saying, I couldn't agree with you more. But for now, let's get back to the actual grassroots demonstration that you were part of. I think when we left, you were standing on the tracks with about 30 people. The neighbors were cheering you on, and the cops didn't know what had happened. Take it from there.
2: The people from the neighborhood brought out a soccer ball and started playing. Uh, We had some coffee ready for people. We had some press conferences, you know, we we had the Occupy Toronto live stream going on and that was being mirrored in the Occupy live stream feeds of almost all nations that have Occupy and we had about 7,000 viewers tune into the live stream and the live stream is definitely a key to being safe because you know people are witnessing it simultaneously. Um, We had speakers who spoke about why they're doing this And the real reason was is that it's global nuclear shutdown. This is the anti-nuclear chain reaction to say it's time to shut these things down. You know, we've had decades of it. We can't tolerate this anymore. The destruction to the land. So this was in solidarity with the Committee for Future Generation, with Marius Paul, who you've interviewed before, a nuclear hot seat. And we're really coming full circle with an um, environmental justice, but and look at the entire fuel chain and we're resisting the NIMBY arguments that says we have to prove that this uranium company is unsafe right in that neighborhood so eventually i guess the train retreated it was really funny the cops made like Well a let's line. get
1: let's get to the point of of the train actually showing up there did you plan the demonstration to coincide with a train that you knew was going to be coming through
2: Well, we had noticed that the trains were going really slow that day because the police must have been tipped off or we've known that the police have been doing surveillance of our activist internet communications ever since the G20 summit in Toronto in 2010. So the trains were going slower. Normally they're going about 35 miles an hour and we could see that they're going 10 miles an hour. When we went onto the rail... There was no train coming, but the police were really afraid, and they were starting to radio P T rail, and um, there was a train coming in a distance. We couldn't really tell, but it was coming towards us, but it came screeching to a halt about 20 feet in front of our banner. so it was really, it, you know, it looked like there were going to be some hairy moments there, but it made for an excellent photo op because we caught the train.
1: It was such a thrilling set of photos and, again, the video. It was kind of like our version of Tiananmen Square.
2: Anti-Nukaluya.
1: Yeah, Anti-Nukaluya. That's a great one to have. So when you had succeeded in stopping the train, you got the neighborhood involved. The media did some coverage on it. Uh, How was the media coverage, by the way?
2: The media coverage was spotty. We were competing against Super Bowl Sunday. Um, but we thought that was... Of
1: course, crazy. War Without Guns.
2: Ironically, the police would not let in the reporter from the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So we didn't get on CBC, but we did get covered in the Toronto Star. And we also got in Vice Magazine, which is an American major magazine that caters to skateboarders, surfers, and stoners. So that was really good to have, like, a youth-oriented piece.
1: Going forward from this demonstration, where is the group going? Where are you focusing? If there's even anything you feel comfortable discussing in such a public way. I think that the more
2: public you are, that the safer you are. If you make yourself such a big target and everything's out in the open, it's when activists start to get afraid and don't make sure that they're public. Like our safety is in our numbers and our safety is in being public with these plans and our safety is in our principle that this is wrong. Like We know CP Rail does transport uranium on that line, but the plant itself gets uranium from the truck. But we were stopping it to make the point to say that there's going to be economic disruption and that we are going to achieve a global nuclear shutdown by any means necessary. We're not going to foreclose on any tactics that would let us do it. But In that diversity of tactics model, that still means knocking on doors in the neighborhood and getting the petition by the member of parliament signed. But what we're finding, and I think what you'll find, is the responsibility and the decisions always happen in the space in between other people's responsibilities, like the space in between the walls.
1: Explain that a little bit more deeply.
2: Well, the lines that divide what, who is responsible for what... You're talking about in
1: the actual establishment, corporate, government, regulatory body that's out there.
2: Yes, yeah, but even, even even into civil society groups and environmental groups based on, you know, where they're funded. I mean, the, the United Steelworkers and CAW, which CAW, Canadian Auto Workers, represents the plant, but United Steelworkers is funding so much environmental initiative to focus on fossil fuel but it's probably earmarked on the condition that they don't do anything about nuclear so when a community has a problem the only way to solve it is to pressurize all of these responsible authorities because dealing with them they are professional time bandits they will waste your time they will suck up your time so you'll call Toronto Public Health and they'll tell you to call The federal regulator, you'll call your federal representative and they'll say, well, that's also a provincial issue. You'll call the province and they'll say, you might want to talk to the city. It's a bureaucratic, Kafka-esque system that is designed to evade any real responsibility. And um, we need to recognize that. But we need to also play within the system to extinguish the appearance of not having worked within the system. So we asked General Electric. Can we have your emissions data ever since you've been open well they will only give us five years back they said to give us other data they would have to sort of take till the end of 2013 to give us the rest of the data the data they gave us in environmental monitoring report is incomplete because they don't have the appendix which they say is commercially sensitive information but they say that their emissions are verified up the stack and down into the sewer by independent third parties, and we asked them, well, can we have that information from the independent third parties, and they said, we do not have permission from the independent third parties to release who they are. They admit putting 8 kilograms of uranium down the sewer. They acknowledge that their legal limit... In
1: what period of time? Over the last
2: five years, mm-hmm. but they, they admit that their legal limit is allowable and permissible 9,000 kilograms into the sewer every year. But that's not including the nuclear waste that they ship out of the plant because they also collect it in filters, and that's out of sight and out of mind. But they're also putting it up into our air. And we all know from Dr. Caldicott that the solution to pollution by dilution is totally fallacious when it comes to radiation because alpha particles through your inhalation pathway, if you're lucky enough to get one, it can then form a cancer that will express in anywhere from 2 to 60 years. So... This company, General Electric, has manufactured bombs in the past. They have intentionally kept the community in the dark, yet there seems to be this inertia amongst the community that, oh, well, someone's going to deal with it. You know, like our our representatives are going to deal with it. Or or if it were really that bad in the community, the government wouldn't let that happen. Or this, this false sense of, oh, well, you know, we know nuclear waste is bad, And we know that the mining is bad, but maybe it's safe here. It's not safe here, and it's not safe anywhere. So we're really wanting to show people that direct action is one of the only things that brings results. So direct action and negotiation are good, but you can't have negotiation lead anywhere without direct action. And direct action won't lead anywhere without negotiation. So we're planning something big for March 11th.
1: I won't ask you the details now because I believe that the surprise would probably be better than anything that could be leaked at this time. But I would like to know if people wish to contact you, support the work, and find out more about what's going on in Canada, and specifically Toronto at this time fighting that GE facility, where can they go, where can they find out more? Well, hopefully you'll link it on your podcast. Of course, Uh, I always do, but it's good Um, to have it in audio as well.
2: uh, It's a bit of a complicated blog, but it's geuraniumsecretintoronto.blogspot. You can also search us on Facebook at GE's West End Toronto Uranium Production Facility. I also encourage anyone to email me, and my email address I just hand out freely or add me on Facebook at Zach no router
1: Z A C H, you use NoCamico, and what is Camico for those of us not in Canada? Camico,
2: along with Arriva, the French company, are the two largest uranium mining and refining companies in the world. So the homegrown is Camico. And in Port Hope, just outside of Toronto, is where they did work for the Manhattan Project, and they continue to put plumes of radioactivity into Lake Ontario's drinking water. So I'm very opposed to that company, Cameco. So it's C-A-M-E-C-O, but no Cameco, R-U-I-T-E-R. And my email address is just my first initial, which is uh, Z-R-U-I-T-E-R at gmail.com. And I'd really love to hear from other people who are fighting General Electric Tatchee. I've been getting emails from people in England where GE Apache wants to build new reactors, but also I need to connect with some people in North Carolina because General Electric Apache is unfortunately planning a laser enrichment uranium processing facility for North Carolina. But to me, that signals something really bad because – here in Toronto, they say, oh, it's natural uranium. You know, it's organic, it's inert, it's you don't have to worry about it. But they obviously think that processing enriched uranium isn't a problem either. What would could be good would be to connect a group of people who are going to focus on the GE Hitachi Corporation. I mean, if for any reason they are the manufacturer of the Fukushima nuclear plant that is spewing radiation into our atmosphere and the radiation is being censored as we speak.
1: That is known and covered on nuclear hot seat, Zach, and I have to thank you for being articulate, passionate, committed, and amazingly well informed and i invite you at any time in the future to contact us with updates as to what is happening in toronto and around canada so that we can keep growing this global movement to end nuclear
2: and the last thing that i want to say is um, you don't get anywhere by asking permission and by being nice you get everywhere by prying open the door like forcing the issue pressurizing the issue, and the thing that I think will really win this movement is the arts and crafts and the art.
1: You and I deserve to have a further conversation on that. Zach nocanico Reuter, you're doing terrific work up in Canada, and I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you, and I'm, I'm hoping to go on a toxic tour
2: of the nuclear fuel chain soon, so um, hopefully I'll be able to meet you and uh, some of your listeners in the uh, near future.
1: We all look forward
2: to it. Okay, thank you.
0: We will have a listing of all Zach No Chemical Reuters links, plus a video report on the Toronto demonstration up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Go to the blog page. In a follow-up to last week's interview with Dr. Catherine Euler, one of the Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory Six who were arrested and then found guilty of trespass, there is no word on the sentence that she and the other five will be receiving. We'll let you know as soon as we know. A reminder that Dr. Helen Caldicott is producing a landmark global symposium on the medical and ecological consequences of Fukushima. This will take place March 11 and 12 in New York City. You can access all the information on a new site, HelenCaldicottFoundation.org, and that's where you can sign up to come learn from scientists, researchers, medical doctors, and genuine experts who are on the cutting edge of the information of what is happening as a result of the worst nuclear disaster the world has ever seen, a nuclear disaster that isn't over yet. It will also be live-streamed, so if you can't get to New York, you can follow it on your computer. For the information, go to HelenCaldicottFoundation.org for the lineup of speakers and everything else you need to know to participate. Here's today's final thought. This Sunday, February 17, will be the largest climate change rally ever held in Washington, D.C., Organized by the Sierra Club and 350.org, it will feature an alliance of groups, perspectives, beliefs, and speakers on every aspect of the global warming and climate change conversation, except nuclear. That's right. There are no speakers on the carbon footprint of the nuclear cycle, from mining to manufacturing to spent fuel, to say nothing of radioactive contamination, and the lack of safe disposal for all of our tons of nuclear waste. In addition, a recent conference call between the organizers of this rally and supporting groups did not even mention the word nuclear. Even worse than that, rumor has it that James Hansen, an environmentalist who has a long history with the Sierra Club and is a hero to many, but who is virulently pro-nuke as a means of fighting carbon emissions, may be one of the speakers. The Sierra Club has not released a full list of its speakers and will not either confirm or deny James Hansen's involvement, which leads one to assume guilt by omission if Hansen is indeed allowed to address the rally. Why should we be concerned? Well, here's a quote from an open letter Hansen wrote to the Obamas when President Obama was president-elect. He wrote about nuclear power, quote, The danger is that the minority of vehement anti-nuclear, quote-unquote, environmentalists could cause development of advanced safe nuclear power to be slowed such that utilities are forced to continue coal burning in order to keep the lights on. It seems to me that it is time to get fed up with those people, who think they can impose their will on everybody and all the consequences that might imply for the planet? Excuse me? People who think they can impose their will on everybody? Oh, you must mean the NRC, GE Hitachi, Oriva, Cameco, the utilities, pro nuclear suck ups like you, Mr. Hansen. Well, The Coalition Against Nukes is going to be at the climate change rally, as loud and as vocal as possible, and they will not be accepting this environmental damnation of our perspective. If you can get there, I urge you to attend and make your voices known. You can learn more about what CAN is planning on their Facebook page, Coalition Against Nukes. Beyond that, if you are a member of a local Sierra Club, get on the horn and read them the Riot Act, Nukes are not green. Nukes are the opposite of green. And they cannot be considered and greenwashed as part of the environmental attempt to turn around global warming. Because let's face it, as Zach Reuter said, nuclear winter is not the solution to global warming. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 12, 2013. Material for this podcast was gathered from enenews.com, Fukushima Diary written by Yori Mochizuki, Huffington Post, Nuked Radio with Radchick, Mary Olson and Nears, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Boston Globe, ABC News, Fairwinds Energy Education, San Clemente Green, Coalition Against Nukes, and the ever-vigilant Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. You can find all our podcasts posted on NuclearHotSeat.com. It's still easiest to just click on the blog tab. We can also be found if you friend me and Nuclear Hot Seat on its two Facebook pages. You can also get the entire library on iTunes podcasts. Share us, link to us on your websites, forward us to your lists. This podcast is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevy of Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep.